We serve a God who desires a relationship with us. We serve a God that yearns, amazingly enough, but He yearns that we are in communion with Him. You see, He isn't a God that sits on a throne looking down His nose at us. He isn't a God that desires to look for a slip-up so that He can punish us. But He's a God that loves us, that cares for us, that so much desired a relationship with us, He made us in His image. And He knew in our frailty that we would shake our fist at Him. So He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. This is the God we serve. And it's just so amazing that He's provided for us His Word to study and to dig into and to evaluate and to see Him more. And His richness just exudes from His Word. Even in the parts, as we talked last week in in Genesis chapter 10, which just looks like this amazing litany of names that I can't pronounce. But in spite of that, there's just a richness of God exuding out of these passages. So we're very fortunate. God has ordained many opportunities for us. So we get Sunday mornings to dig into his word. We have community groups. John talked a bit about the men's retreat. And and man, God was there and he was changing some lives. The women's studies that are coming up. And it's exciting to see what's going on in those. Community groups, another thing. Oh, and by the way, for the women's study, there's a sign-up sheet out there. If you please would sign up as you, as you go out. But we have a God that wants us to get to know Him better. Not a God that wishes for us to be able to spout off Scripture to argue. But rather a God that wants us to be able to share His truth in love. Because there's so many that need Him. And we're going to read about more desperate people today. We went through Genesis chapter 10 last week. And as I confessed to you at the beginning, when I first saw that I drew the lot to teach Genesis chapter 10, I thought, you have an incredible sense of humor, God. But I'm not all that impressed right at this moment. Wow, did I underestimate what God was going to bring me through in studying Genesis chapter 10. And it is just such a beautiful chapter and how he brings us to a point of understanding what he was going to do. So Genesis chapter 10 really actually fits after Genesis chapter 11, verse 9. But God put Genesis chapter 10 as sort of this overview for us to look at. Now we're going to dig in a little bit. So we talked about the dispersion. Genesis chapter 10 is a book of genealogies from Noah through to Abraham. And it's also a book of history. So it's giving us a historical perspective and it's an atlas. It tells us where we come from. So how many of you remember which of Noah's sons we can trace our lineage back to? Somebody want to share it? This is the audience participation part. We don't do enough of that. I make my students at the vet school involved. Very good. Japheth. So, so we know that Japheth and, and his family moved north and northwest. They moved away. We, and, and then God sent Paul to get them later, right? And that's how come we can, we can know Christ, because Paul came and shared the good news with the Gentiles. 
Ham and his family, these guys were the tough ones. These are the powerful ones. We've got Nimrod, right, the great warrior. Mythology, probably you can trace the, the picture of the centaur back to Nimrod, half man, half horse, because he was able to, to domesticate the horse and use them. Built cities. This guy's a big, tough guy. And it's tough because it seems to be directly opposite of what the end of chapter 9 was telling us, which was the family of Ham would, in fact, in, in Canaan, would serve those of Shem. So it was a little challenging to see that. There's this big, powerful arm of the family of Noah that's building monstrous buildings and big cities, and they just look like they're insurmountable. But God needed them for two reasons. One was he needed an infrastructure, and two, what greater way to show God's power than to bring the family of Shem, which are these meek, humble folks that are interspersed in the family of Ham. All throughout the Middle East, they're interspersed with these guys. And, and at some level, cowering away from them. We see that in the picture of Gideon, right? It's one of my favorite pictures of, of the family of, of Shem and, and, and hiding in the wine press, threshing out the wheat, the mighty warrior Gideon. But we needed Ham. God needed Ham because it allowed him to get an infrastructure and more so allowed him to show his glory and his power. And then the family of, of Shem. And we know that's where the messianic line continued through as we go down to the family of Abraham. So it's an incredible opportunity for us to see what's going on. And that's what we saw in chapter 10. But now we're going to go back to the beginning of chapter 10 as we start chapter 11. You all with me there? So we're going to talk about now in the first nine verses of chapter 11 happened before the genealogy that we read in chapter 10. So let's look at that and see what God had to say. Actually, if we go to the, yeah, if we look at this in chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they begin to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is, was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the whole face of the earth. Hmm. So, great stuff. I remember when I first looked at these nine verses, I thought, wow, I don't know if I can use up 35, 40 minutes about this, because it's pretty cut and dried. They did the wrong thing. They were separated. But as you dig more, there's a lot of... Of, of things in there. So let's just ask God to, to make it clear to us. Lord, I love your word. And I just love what you've put down. I love the chance to, to study it, to see your person more clearly. Lord, this is such a beautiful picture of you. In the spite of man shaking their fist at you, 
you drew closer to them. Lord, it's a picture of the Trinity, picture of, of the triune God coming to us, desiring, Lord, to do the right thing for us. Lord, would you make it clear to us what you have for us today? Amen. So if we look at the, the map and the lineage here, so you can all read that, right? Uh, just like last week. The, the key is in, we're looking at the red box there. So we've got the sons of Noah all the way down through Peleg and Jochim. And this is where we know this is where the Tower of Babel hit because in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 10, it tells us that because the earth was divided and we know that they were, they were separated at that point. So Joktan and Peleg were around right as the Tower of Babel happened and the dispersion occurred. So that's the ge- part of the genealogy we're going to cover today. And then we're going to talk about the other part of that next Sunday. So let's look and see what we can learn. In the first couple of verses of chapter 11, we hear, now the whole world, earth, use the same language and the same words. Wouldn't that be interesting to think about the fact that there's no language barriers? There's, there's absolutely nothing to stop us from understanding each other. If, you have a, if you've ever had an opportunity to travel somewhere where they speak another language, it's very interesting how you can feel so left out. I remember a few years ago when Amy and I were in Brazil, there was these two boys and and they spoke only Portuguese, and I can only say thank you in Portuguese and ask where the bathroom is. And they would come up and talk to us, and they just didn't understand why we couldn't understand them. And they couldn't understand why we use such funny words. And they couldn't understand us. And they would talk to their mom, uh, mom and aunt and ask them, why did they say words that sound so funny? And why don't they answer us when we talk to them? So it's a unique perspective to be in that. Can you imagine being a spot where there was nothing? There would be no limitations and no boundaries. We'd have opportunities to share ideas and thoughts and processes so thoroughly and so easily. And that was God's original design, was for us to be able to do that, but to use it for his good. And as we see this, the whole earth, now everybody was the same. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. We've seen this concept of moving east a couple of times. When Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, they were thrown out on the east side of the garden. And God put an angel there or a cherubim to guard against them coming back. So he put a cherubim there to stop them. We know in Genesis 4.16 that when Cain was sent out from the presence of God, which direction did he go? He went east. So we're starting to see a history repeating itself. When mankind is moving off to do something they shouldn't do, they go east. Right? Isn't it great to live in the west? But it's an interesting perspective. Uh, there were a couple of things that really caught me here. One is, after reading through Genesis chapter 10... And having high esteem for the, the family of Shem and knowing that the family of Japheth was eventually going to be the Gentiles to find out that, you know what, they went to. Far as we can tell, everybody went east. Everyone did it. And this is, this is of some concern to me because I had better expectations for these guys than that. 
Who, so an interesting part, in Genesis 13:11, we see another time. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Because again, Lot was moving away. Now the good news was Lot finally came back, but there were some issues here. And they separated from each other. So we see that, that in God's economy right here, he's pointing out something for us to learn. And it's not so much that it was east or west or north or south, but the context here is they were moving away from God. And they did the same thing that Cain and his family did in moving away from God. Now, again, why do we look at this and say east was bad? Moving east was a problem. What did God tell them in chapter 9? Told them to be fruitful. They were probably doing that. Told them to multiply. They were probably doing that. And he said to cover the face of the earth. The whole block of the family moving east doesn't very well cover that, does it? So they were in direct disobedience to God going together. Step one. It's an interesting part. James Dixon quoted in one of his books, Once again, as with the generations of Cain, it is the human effort to rebuild Eden without redemption from sin and without submission to God. And we're going to see exactly what these guys did. They moved as a group in direct disobedience to God because God said, Disperse. I want you all over the place. But instead, they stood in, stayed in a group and they moved in a group. They moved away from where God was, over to here, in a group, in you know, a disobedient, and, and they were looking for their own glory. We know that because of the following verses. So they start off moving away from God. It's, it's interesting as we go on and look at chapter 11, verse 3. It's the mob mentality starts to take impact here. Now, we know that eventually the family of Shem is a messianic line, and thereby comes Abraham and eventually Christ. We know that the seed is there. The continuation of this line is critical. Just as it was from, from Seth to Noah, it is, it is as well from Shem to Abraham. But... There's the mob mentality. There's the group. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. There's the group. So you can imagine that at some level, do you think Shem didn't remember God saying, cover the face of the earth? Do you think Japheth didn't remember that? Do you think Ham didn't remember that? Do you think that now just a generation removed from the flood? That they couldn't recall what God had commanded them? I'm pretty sure they remembered it. I'm pretty sure this was something they thought about as they packed up and started to head east. That they said that they, they did it on purpose. But it's a mob mentality. If we stay together, if we do that. How many times do teenagers get in trouble because one of them has an idea? Now the one who has the idea does not have the guts to carry it out nine times out of ten. But he figures that if he can throw it out to this group and get one or two other people to buy into it, then they'll do it. And that's how it starts to happen. Well, we're actually very little different. We'll do the same things. So-and-so did it. Somebody else did it. It must be okay. Uh, we'll do that. So that's what we see here. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone and tar for mortar. It's easy to 
justify evil demands or desires if somebody else will go with you, if someone else will do it with you. Two things to think about there. One is that gives us a great opportunity to be the right leaders wherever we are to not guide people down the wrong path. Right? So first of all, that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to never, ever try to get people to go down the wrong path. But secondly, if someone else came up with the plan, we should come alongside and encourage them not to go there, not to do that. So we have a couple of opportunities there to look at that. It's also easy to cloak evil and saying, ah, but, but so-and-so did it. Somebody, Nimrod, everybody looked up to Nimrod. He was a big, masterful man, powerful, had great plans and great designs. It was Nimrod's idea. Right? It, we'll blame it on him, so we'll cloak it in that, even though they all went. So all of Shem's family, all of Japheth's family went as well. It's interesting as well when you look at, at the different things in... in uh, this concept of building, this whole idea of building, this is a nice picture up there of, of some artist perspective of what the Tower of Babel might have looked like. It's, it's interesting. There's actually some interesting perspectives. They, uh, they, they called these uh, jiggernauts. And the idea was that they, they actually spiraled up so that somebody could start. They've unearthed many of these archaeologically. So this is not something that I just came up with. But they would actually spiral around the building with the opportunity to get all the way to the top. And, and in the ones that they've, that they've unearthed, they would typically have some type of shrine on top that you could go up to. Said, but what does this deal with building stuff? And, and what does that look like? And I, I promise you this is not because I'm a farm boy that I'm going to say this. But, but I, did, I did gather some satisfaction about being a farm boy when per, looking at the... But if you look at Genesis 4:17, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So Cain went out and did this. Well, we're seeing the same sort of things here with these guys. What do they do? They build a city. So therefore, cities we now know are evil. Not really, but there is an interesting perspective here. And that in Genesis 4, as long in Genesis 10, the rebellious people's first thoughts were to build a city. To build something that you could see quickly, easily, that you could identify and name. And that it would identify with you. It's a fascinating experience to, to look at these things and to see what's happening uh, you know, when Amy and I were, were in Italy a couple of years ago, we saw all these big cathedrals. And they're, they're named after a family. In community group last week, we talked about another, another big uh, basilica in, in Africa. In the middle of the African bush, the biggest basilica in the world holds 750,000 people. So the Johnsons were telling us about this. And it's, they were built, many of these, to identify with a person. I want you to all recognize me when you walk into this cathedral or this basilica or, or whatever. And it was the same thing that, that, that Cain did for his son Enoch and the same thing that Nimrod was doing. Some concept of safety in numbers perhaps. Or maybe it's still the mob mentality. If we get enough people there, we can do bad things and it's hard to point a finger at any one individual. Whereas if there's just a small group, it becomes much easier to do that. 
Cain built a city. Enoch and Noah walked with God. Building a city isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's the motive of the heart that was the issue for Cain as well for Nimrod and the lineage of Noah before God dispersed them. It's also interesting that they may use man-made materials, if you will. They didn't use stones, which was the common building thing at the time. Instead, they made bricks and mortar. So they built this not with traditional stones, but with man-made articles. There's some argument that they did it because the plain didn't have any rocks. Now, I don't know tons about these areas, but every picture I've ever seen, there's lots of rocks in the Middle East. So I'm not so sure that they found the one place that didn't, but perhaps that's the case. It would seem to fit more with the fact that they desired to use something of their own so that they could take more credit for it. I don't know on that one. In verse 4, it shows an absolute disobedience to God. Now, we, they've shown by their actions a disobedience so far. Let's all go together. Okay? That, that we know is wrong because God told them to cover the earth and they weren't doing that. But now we're going to see that they really shake their hands at God. And they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We now see their heart. So before we saw actions, and in all cases, your actions really show a picture of your heart. But now they're verbalizing it. They're saying, we're doing this in direct disobedience to what God told us to do. Two out of three, right? We'll be fruitful, we'll multiply, but we will not cover the face of the earth. We're going to stick together because in together we have power. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll be something special. What a sad realization that all people that have that heart must feel when we know that the only name that stands above all names is that of Jesus Christ. We know that in the end, every knee will bend and every head will bow at the name of, the, of Jesus Christ. We know that. That's, we see that in the end. This isn't, well, about 80% of you will do this or 20% will do this. We know that's the case. These guys are going to see that. Now, they felt the wrath of God when he dispersed them. But at some point, Nimrod will recognize that even he will bow before the name of Jesus Christ, regardless of the name he was trying to present for himself. I used to think that the whole concept of the Tower of Babel was to get closer to God. That's how pathetic my understanding of the word was and how I just didn't study it. I just read it. And I looked at it and I said, oh, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with building a tower so you can get closer to God, but, but there's absolutely no evidence at all that they wanted to be closer to God. In fact, is the evidence is they wanted to supplant God. This is now we're looking at alternative gods. So Cain shook his fist at God when he killed Abel. And when he didn't confess to that. But we have no evidence that Cain and his family went on to develop alternative gods. They just moved away from God. But we're seeing here that Nimrod, in fact, presumably, because we see that they attribute Babylon to Nimrod, so presumably he was the guy in charge, 
he actually developed for them the potential of alternative gods. Wanted to reach into heaven, not to get close to God, but to show God they didn't need him. They had their own. We can be our own gods, perhaps. We can make our own gods. We don't need you. Now, that's some kind of nervy response. Remember, just three generations before was the flood. you got to stop and think. Occasionally, is this a good idea? Or am I being really stupid in thinking that all of a sudden God's going to let me do anything I want to do? I mean, I'm astounded by the fact that Nimrod and these people had the audacity just three generations removed from the flood to pull this off. It's really incredible how the thoughts of man are evil continuously. This is, this is something that you know it takes less and less time, it seems, for man to get further and further away from God. And, and we can see the things. These guys talk to Noah. They talked to Shem and Ham and Japheth. They knew what it was like for a year in the ark with the animal. This is not some removed fairy tale. They're talking to the guys that went through it. And they're still willing to say, go ahead, God. We don't need you. We don't need you. Maybe it's that reliance on the promise that he's no longer going to completely abolish mankind. Maybe they were testing him. Will you really do it? I just can't believe they did it. And they wanted to make a name for us themselves. Let us make a, our, for ourselves a name. We want to be powerful. Remember back to Seth. Remember back in Genesis 4.26. And to Seth, to him also was born a son. And he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Or alternatively, men began to be called by the name of the Lord. They had a name. They had a name with the the all-powerful God. They had a name with the, the Alpha and the Omega. They had an identity. All they had to do was embrace that identity. They had the best name opportunities in the world. But they wanted something for themselves. It's a classic aspect that we do as people. You know, the sad part is I'm no different. I struggle with the name thing. You want people to know who you are. Depending upon your profession and what you do, it can be very valuable for people to know your name and who you are. And there's some satisfaction of meeting somebody that you've never met before and having them say, I know who you are. It's a flesh thing, right? We, we all struggle with it. Some of us more than others but it's a challenge, and yet God wants us to have our complete identity in Him. Who are we but children of God? What more could we want? I mean, really, what more could you say about me that would provide more for my life than to say, He's a son of God. He's a brother in Christ. That should be what I look for. That should be my sustenance. That should be my foundation and what sustains me. But we struggle with that. 
We all struggle with this concept, but it's time to recognize that, that we need to be focused on who God has us to be. We need to take our satisfaction in being named by Him and not trying to develop a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, that was God's intent. God's intent was them to go everywhere. Was God punishing mankind and asking them to go out and cover the face of the earth? No, it was a blessing. There's a big, wide world out there. Go dominate it. I've given it all to you. It's all yours. Man, they should have been running for it. They should have been trying to see who could get the farthest, just to see what was there, to know the richness of the kingdom of God and what he had available to them. But instead, they were so focused on themselves and, and they, they, they just weren't willing to do that. So do we still see issues like this? So I, I've shown you a picture of this building that they're building in the United Arab Emirates. It's a... Uh, Burj Dubai. Right now, it's 1,680 feet tall. It's taller than any other building in the, in the world. 141 structurally sound stories. They're aiming to add about another 500 feet in height to this thing. They desire for this thing to be somewhere greater than 2,200 feet. They won't say because they don't want somebody to come and design a building that's supposed to be just a little bit taller than that. It's an amazing thing. That's what it's supposed to look like when it's done. This monstrous uh, building that sits there and it's a pinnacle uh, for man. It's interesting to me, the location of this. This isn't very far from where we assume the Tower of Babel was. It's just a little bit further down the Red Sea. Not so far as one might imagine. So we'll see what God has in store and what he does with this. We know that at some stage we're going to come back and have a same language again. We know that at some point when we're in heaven that we will all speak the same language, but it will be that language that is there purely to glorify God and to bring glory to him. In Zephaniah 3.9, For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Verses 5 and 6. God is so good. You see, he could have left the people to just destroy themselves. He could have left them to have no hope. But he's watching all the time. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language, and this is what they have begun to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. You know, God didn't need to come down to see what was going on. Do you think he had a pretty good idea what these guys were doing? He didn't need to. But for me, it's just a beautiful picture of him drawing closer to his people. Not the distant God that throws lightning bolts, but rather the, the God of relationships and love that came down. I'll come to you. You went east. You weren't supposed to. You went as a group. You weren't supposed to. 
You're building a city to make your own name for yourself and to make your alternative God. You're not supposed to. But rather than just opening the ground and swallowing you up, I'm going to come down to you. We know that in Genesis 6, 5, just before the flood, the Bible tells us, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God knew that this family of eight that went on the ark was going to do this. We have to remember, none of this surprises God. Right? Adam and Eve, breaking his rules in the Garden of Eden, didn't surprise him. I firmly believe his desire was for them not to. But he's not surprised at what man does. And Genesis 6-5 tells us that. It's the reason why he allowed them to go, because it gave him the chance to use Christ as the definitive offering or sacrifice for their salvation. And that's for us, too. See, we maybe haven't built the Tower of Babel, but at some level we're doing it anyways. We do it on a much smaller scale, most of us. It's ourselves. We build ourselves up and do that. And what was God's response in Genesis 11, verses 7 through 9? Since nothing will stop them, let us go down and there confuse the language so that they will not understand one another's speech so that the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. We saw last week in Genesis 10.5, he was talking about the Gentiles. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nation. The beautiful picture of the Trinity. Come, let us go. If you look at the conversation in, in verses uh, 5 and 6, it's hard to imagine God saying to himself, what are they doing down there? But rather, he's talking to the, the Trinity, the triune God, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now I said, let's go down and confuse them. We can rebel all we want, but God's still in control. It's the thing we have to remember. Regardless of, of what we think, regardless of how much we think of ourselves, God is still in control. He brought the flood. He gave everybody new voices. Can you imagine what that was like? All of a sudden to be talking to somebody that you couldn't understand anymore? You've never, you've never been there before. You'd never seen that. You were always able to communicate. And now you can't. It's interesting here that, that the confusion didn't really just stop at language. The confusion also went into our sense of worshiping God. And so we've confused things and we said, well, this isn't okay to worship God, but this is not. Or, or I worship God this way, you, you worship God this way. and this, Everything sort of got discombobulated there. And God's going to give us an opportunity to come back together, however, at some point. And I just love Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when it shows just the opposite. So I can just see this group of people who are trying to talk to each other, but the words don't make sense anymore. They can't understand what this person is saying. This person can't understand them. So all of a sudden, the direct opposite in, at Pentecost, when these guys are sitting there going, but he doesn't speak my language, but I hear him as if we were talking in the same language. What a beautiful picture. God can use languages to achieve anything he wants. 
He took here this common language and he separated them into families and into nations based upon what they spoke. So these two people who couldn't understand each other would turn away and try to find someone that they could understand. And when these guys all got together, they moved off because it just didn't make any sense to stay here anymore. God's plan and his purpose was taken care of. This is such a beautiful picture of the grace of God. His desire was for his people to do what he knew we needed to do, and he used that. So what's it all look like? In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see four main things happening. The creation, the fall of man, and God's judgment to the fall was to push them out of the Garden of Eden. And what was his plan? Jesus Christ. Right? Men, Adam and Eve sinned. He pushed them out of the Garden, but he purposed Christ as a messianic line. Man's heart is evil continuously. We see as it moves into Genesis, the judgment is the flood. The plan, it's still Christ. It doesn't change. The plan stays the same. They tempted the Tower of Babel. Judgment dispersed them. And the plan was to follow them up with the good word and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ by sending people out. And it led to the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all nations and you share the good news, the gospel with them. And you see, we're the benefactors of Paul doing that and some of the other apostles because he followed the line of Japheth. But it's our job now. This is what we're supposed to be doing. We need to be out there because you see, we're part of the plan. Once you have accepted Christ as your Savior, it's your job to be out there Sharing the good news. You gotta get out there and do that. So what does the Tower of Babel teach us? Regardless of our abilities, God's will is still God's will and His plan will get done. Why fight it? Look for it. Embrace it. See what God's will is for your life. Search it out. And be in that will. It takes a lot less energy to do what God wants you to do than it does to fight him in his plan for you. We also see that that looking for a name for ourselves should be non-existent. We shouldn't desire that people would look to us, but rather we would be reflectors of Jesus Christ. That, That rather we would be ones whom people could see God when they looked at us, not us. So next week, we're going to go in and we're going to follow the the line of Shem and dig into it a little bit deeper than we did last week. And we're going to see just where God's plan is for Abraham and the continuation of the Messianic line. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to know your Son. What an incredible opportunity it is to study your word. It is fantastic to be among this this family today. Yet my prayer would be for all of us that you would help us to see our need to be out sharing your truth to those who desperately need you. Lord, we have the opportunity to know of your truth. 
because the apostles followed Japheth in his line. We have the possibility of, of salvation because you carried on the messianic line through Shem's family, regardless, Lord, of whether or not they actually shook their fist at you to begin with as well. Thank you for not allowing them to, to shake their fist forever, but rather, Lord, uh, you brought your line through them. So thank you. Lord, please take us out from here today and, and uh, keep our focus on you and what you have for us in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.